Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Ahead of the Auditor General's report on the Greenbelt today, what are some of the implications of that announcement? Well, we'll delve into that. News publishers are asking the Competition Bureau to stop Meta's new blocking. Kevin Desjardins, who's the president of the Canadian Association of Broadcasters, will join us to talk about it. And what does Canada have to show for the fight against forced labor in China? Critics say, not much. It's all coming up at the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. All eyes in the first part of the day, anyway, are going to be on Queen's Park, uh, where uh, Auditor General Abani Lissick will finally release her highly anticipated report into Premier Doug Ford's controversial Greenbelt land swap. Global's Matt Carty has some details for us. The Premier has repeatedly said this. There's nothing to hide here. The allegation is that developers were tipped off about the plan to build homes on Greenbelt land before the announcement was even made. Two developers have even gone to court to block Lissick's order to be interviewed under oath. And Ford has taken aim at her office, saying this is not even in the Auditor General's scope. The province's Integrity Commissioner is also looking into the allegation as well. Matt Cardi, Global News. Well, uh, there's a lot of back and forth on this. Uh, you heard the Premier, uh, nothing to see here. Uh, uh, notwithstanding the fact that a couple of his uh, friends that made huge donations to the campaign uh, tried to block this whole process. So I, I don't know what exactly we're going to hear, but we do want to talk about the implications of, uh, of the announcement from uh, the Auditor General later on today. And uh, to give us some background on this, I'm so pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Phil Pothin, who is the Envir- Ontario Environment Program Manager for Environmental Defense. Uh, Phil, good to talk with you again. Thanks so much for the time on a busy day today. Oh, thanks for having me again, Bill. I uh, I took out time for my holiday to talk to you. So, I'm, I'm Well, this is perfect. Well, this is a big day and a big announcement. There's a lot of anticipation, as Matt Carty was mentioning in his report to us right now. Uh, I, I, right off the top, what are you expecting to hear today? Well, we don't know how many of the sordid details today's Auditor General's report will reveal about the Greenbelt grab because key players uh, are refusing to testify. But what we do know already with absolute certainty is that the government, we're doing this to speed up housing construction cover story is a lie because bulldozing part of the Greenbelt won't deliver a single net new home and it'll probably make it harder to speed up output because there's so much land already available for development and and there's already land right next to this site uh, that's ready to go. So every new home that would be built on the Greenbelt lands removed is one less home that we built elsewhere. But the pictures were hope the pieces of the picture we're hoping the Auditor General will fill in for us uh, are firstly, uh, the, the Rouge lands were subject to what amounts to easements in favor of the public interest worth hundreds of millions, if not more than a billion dollars. And those development rights, which ought to have been retained for the public and which could have been paid for, even if they were going to be uh, handed off, were handed over free of charge to real estate investors we know had very close personal and political ties to the government. The individuals involved, as you mentioned, have used some very aggressive legal tactics, brought out some old friends of mine from law school, uh, you know, to avoid answering questions uh, in time for the report. But we're still very hopeful the Auditor General will reveal enough of the details of those dealings to get uh, to kickstart the OPP investigation or outside investigations that have been slow rolled so far. Secondly, this is a value for money audit. So we're very hopeful that the AG will help us put a more concrete dollar figure on just how much public value 
the government gave away to its wedding guests. The good news is that this is Canada, not the U.S. So there's a simple solution to these problems. The Ontario government and legislature can reverse the Greenbelt removals right now using legislation to avoid any cost to taxpayers. That's the only way to clear the stink of corruption in this case. And that's exactly what the government should announce that it is going to do today. And that's exactly what it should do within the next couple of weeks. Recall the legislation. I, I don't disagree with anything you've said, and I think there's a great anticipation that they'd like to see that. But, you know, with a majority government, uh, and, and certainly uh, it seems there's a quid pro quo here. You know, the people that seem to make large donations to the Ford re-election campaign are the ones that benefited from this. There are a few developers. And again, I, I, I always have to mention this because people start to think of things in broad terms. I'm not painting all developers with a broad brush and saying they're all evil and, and, and no, you know, not at undermining. All. Uh, but there are a couple of people here that, that uh, some would say bent the rules. Some would say they went a little bit beyond that too. Well, and, that, and that's, I, I, I think, just the thing underline that... too, it, it's not so much, you know, it's the premier who owes a duty to the public interest. Yeah. Not these private developers. I mean, if you have a buddy that is just giving you stuff, you know, it, the developers themselves do not have duties to the public interest. Their job is to enrich themselves, and that's what they're doing. It's the premier, it's the, uh, it's the government as a whole that would be doing something wrong here, uh, depending on what the Auditor General reveals. And certainly from a moral point of view, we know that they've done something wrong. Uh, it, it, the developers, you know, they, they will go wherever... Uh, you know, the, the, the crumbs are thrown and it's the premier and the government's fault for throwing them. Well, and we've seen that happen. I mean, you know, we, I, you, you know, my history, I was on city council for nine years in Hamilton and I uh, was on the planning department and chaired it for a number of years too. Uh, and you can say, yeah, that's a great project. Let's do it. But you can't do it there. That's all there is to it. And they may grumble about it, but you know, they'll find a way to make it work. In Pickering, yeah. where most of this land is located in Seton, there is already a vast chunk of land zoned for many thousands of homes all ready to go. It's like, you know, compared to the rest of Pickering and the rest of Durham region and, and, and uh, certainly anywhere in recently built in Hamilton as well on Greenfield, uh, you know, the lands that are planned for development that are not in the Greenbelt are going to be a much higher caliber of development. By opening up the Greenbelt, they are literally taking very scarce construction resources, scarce labor, scarce materials away from these projects that are going to be cheaper to live in, quicker to build, and putting them into the Greenbelt. It makes no sense. So like we know we, we can do that and we are doing it. The government is intentionally choosing not to put things in a place where it could be built cheaply. One of the things that, that bothers me, and I wanted to get your read on this too, uh, is if Ms. Lissick comes out and says essentially the same things you're saying, that this was wrongheaded, uh, you know, you can't lay criminal charges based on this, but the OPP may or may not want to get involved in this. That's another topic for another day, I suppose. But the, the bottom line here, though, Phil, is there are really no ramifications to this. I mean, she can present a damning report today, and the government can just choose to ignore it. And, you know, they're going to have to respond to it, but they don't have to do anything. There's there's no There's no penalty for for doing something unethical like this if in fact that's how the auditor general rules it so you know investigations without consequences seem to be the way things are happening in ontario these days well we have to remember you know that something far less serious than this um uh, you know far less damning than this 
was the thing that brought down the wind government ultimately, right? The, you know, their gas plants issue. Uh, it was much more mild than this. There was not an OPP uh, finding against them, but people understood that, which was, which was, you know, you know, just, you know, goldfish crackers compared to this uh, as, as something that just sank the government long-term. So we know we've done polling that shows that, most people believe that the government's approach to housing is actually going to make the housing crisis work. So they have already lost the battle on the substantive issue. People think they're doing a bad job on housing. They don't think any of the changes they're making are going to do anything better. But the, the right now, that, that dam hasn't broken yet because people are sort of giving them credit for at least trying, right? Like that, oh, they're trying. So the danger for the government, like the reason why this has such potential to be fatal to re-election prospects, uh, fatal to potentially even the premier being able to uh, remain at the head of the PC party, is that it risks breaking the benefit of the doubt that people get that at least the premier is trying something. This shows that the premier, we know now enough to know the premier wasn't actually trying to solve the housing crisis in doing this, that the minister wasn't trying to solve the housing crisis in doing it. That motive doesn't pan out. We, you know, so it, it takes away that veneer of trying your best. And now you just have a government that's failing and intentionally failing. And that's a very dangerous, dangerous situation because it's not just environmental protection. Then. The housing crisis is the uh, is is you know in failure to act and doing the wrong thing and saying the wrong thing in the housing crisis and being seen to put other interests ahead of getting people housed. That is a political third rail. That's the kind of thing that kills governments. That's why the Auditor General's report is such a big deal from a political point of view for the government and why, it, you know, even in the, in the government's perspective, although they have a majority, the smart thing for them to do would be for them to backtrack here to reverse the green belt removals and focus on stuff that will actually work, like opening up development in existing neighborhoods, uh, focusing on compact, lower cost homes. You know, the average size of home that we built in the 50s and 60s was around a thousand square feet. Let's laser focus on those modest family homes, turning those out in existing neighborhoods in compact mid-rise forms, and we can fix this housing crisis. Uh, but you know, in order to clear that air, they're going to have to cancel the green building. Well, and, uh, and, and the pressure politically will be there, I guess, but you know, notwithstanding the fact that the opposition parties don't have a lot of voice in this, but there's there's, there's public pressure, and, and he's re, he, see, the Premier has responded to that in the past. I mean, <laughs> What I think they in the Narwhal in their reporting indicated, I think it was 28 times that both the premier and uh, the municipal affairs minister uh, said, we're not going to touch the green belt. Don't worry, we're not going to do that. Uh, and his own report, though he commissioned that report about a year and a half ago, wasn't it? Uh, looking into the housing crisis, and they came back and said, look, it, there's more than enough land in this province that can be developed and should be developed before you even put your foot in the green belt. And those were his own people that said that. Uh, so the, the problem is, is, yes, there's a lot, there's more than enough land, but these two developers didn't own any of it. They owned land here. And, and you know, that, that's the thing that I think stinks right now, like a bad fish. Well, yeah. And here's the interesting thing. I mean, not, they, they certainly own this land. These developers have wanted this land. It's like a favor that they've wanted. This is a way for the government to ingratiate themselves with very powerful political figures, if nothing else. And, and, and we'll see what else there is to it. 
but uh, it's worth noting too, even some of these same developers, there are other places that these developers could be putting their resources. It's just that this is extra, right? You know how, you know, if you give your kid one cookie and they see another one, right? They're going to want that one too. So they if they have to take the second cookie first in order to get both of them, that's what they're doing. So that's what's happening here, right? The gov these uh, landowners uh, or, or, you know, these, uh, these real estate investors, uh, the government is giving them the second cookie, right? <laughs> and, uh, and so they're, they're rushing to gobble that one down uh, rather than using the ones they already have. I, I, you know, I was reading about this again last night uh, in anticipation of the announcement, and I said I couldn't help but feel badly for the people in, in the Pickering, the Rouge area, that's uh, the main focus of a lot of this today. They spent generations, I mean, years and years, fighting the Pickering, proposed Pickering Airport, and they finally won that battle, it seemed, anyway. And the province moved in with Greenbelt legislation. Now that's being taken away from them, and they got to figure, you know, what, what's going on here? Uh, which raises another question, by the way, that we won't have time to get into today. Is, is is the way that this provincial government now is essentially taken all authority away from municipalities uh, to plan the future of those municipalities. Uh, you know, they've, they've taken away an awful lot of the, the planning department, uh, the the oversight that goes into there. And it's 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 basically streamlined. It's so people can say what they want, do what they want, and get what they want. Uh, and, you know, the first path is just go to the government and say, this is what I want, Mr. Premier. Well, and certainly, I mean, if you were a free market type person, you know, in a theoretical word, in the abstract, there might be a case for that in some areas. But the problem is they're doing it in places that would not, by any stretch of the imagination, have any positive impact on housing supply. This is not about cutting the red tape that's getting away in the way of housing being built. If they were doing that, they'd be opening up you know, a lot of our post-World War II neighborhoods so that you could actually build uh, mid-rise apartment buildings. I'm, I'm visiting in Montreal right now. And the type of neighborhood in Montreal uh, that's the equivalent of, say, suburban Scarborough in Toronto, it has, you know, it's full of mid-rise apartment buildings on regular blocks, you know, four and five-story buildings, so that those quiet, low-car traffic streets without, without many uh, cars or parking, you know, those streets, you know, four times as many families could live on the same street in an existing neighborhood in Montreal than in Toronto. And so this, and the same goes for like existing neighbors of Hamilton. So that's where the low hanging fruit is. That's the kind of red tape that they could cut. They're not doing that. Instead, they are just very, you know, doing fig leaf moves in those existing neighborhoods. Uh, you know, modest increases in the amount of housing in existing neighborhoods. Uh, certainly, you know, they're they're taking off the leash uh, in a few slivers of land. Uh, you know, that are concentrated around transit stations. But the only way to use those uh, development rights are to build in very expensive forms. The low-hanging fruit is what the government is assiduously avoiding uh, uh, picking. A and they're focusing on very expensive McMansion small de sprawl development and, uh, and these point towers just immediately around transit stations. Those are the most expensive ways to deliver housing. Well, we'll find out what the announcement is, and we're going to get more reaction to it a little bit later on. Phil, appreciate you taking some time out from your, your holidays. Enjoy Montreal for the rest of the day today, and I'm sure we'll talk again soon down the road about what's going to happen today. Thank you so much. Take care. Phil Pothin is with, of course, Environmental Defense. He's the Ontario Environment Program Manager. 
You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Update on uh, a story that we've been carrying over the last couple of weeks. Uh, well, it's uh, something of great importance, especially with what you're listening to right now, and that's broadcast journalism. Uh, the Competition Bureau has been asked uh, by uh, news publishers to investigate uh, Meta's uh, move right now to basically start blocking news content. Of course, Google is threatening to do the same thing. It's all in retaliation to this federal bill that was passed uh, some months ago. It's not even in effect right now, but uh, these guys are being rather proactive in this. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Kevin Desjardins, who is the president of the Canadian Association of Broadcasters. Kevin, great to have you back on the show. Thanks for the time today. Good morning. Good to be back. I, I would have thought that the Competition Bureau would be looking at this anyway, and I, I guess we found out yesterday that they've at least started preliminary investigations. Uh, what are we looking for from them? What would we like to see them be, be doing here? Well, I mean, ultimately, this is, a, this is a bit of a new area for them to look into, and and I think that uh, the Competition Bureau, uh, to some extent, is uh, complaint-based, and, and so... Uh, so I think that, you know, we we certainly want for them to examine, uh, to, to investigate what um, Meta is doing and to see that through the lens of the Competition Act. But, you know, ultimately, uh, we would want um, uh, for them to direct uh, Meta to stop blocking news in Canada and to uh, effectively negotiate with uh, Canadian news publishers and broadcasters on the value of their uh, content. And and I, you know, we've we've talked about some of these talking points already, of course, in, in some of the negotiations that have gone on in the bill itself uh, that the f- federal government has finally passed. Uh, you know, and we always use the comparator when we get into this discussion. Well, you know, this happened in Australia, and they tried to do the same sort of thing down there, uh, but they found an agreement. Does, does that give you hope that there is some middle ground here that can be reached? Uh, I mean, I think that there's some optimism there. I, I think on the other side, uh, you know, Canada is still at the leading edge in terms of countries uh, looking at this sort of uh, legislative action and, and, and policy. And, and I do think that uh, Meta has gotten further dug in. Um, uh, I think that they're certainly conscious of the fact that other countries are looking at us and certainly the country just to the south of us is looking at what happens in Canada very closely. And so I think that uh, there is some additional motivation for them to take the hardest line possible. But I think in terms of uh, in terms of blocking news, as they uh, uh, have begun to do, um, we actually think that that crosses the line, and it crosses a line into abusing their dominant position in the market. And you know, I've listened to some of their arguments, and, and you've I have had these discussions in previous uh, uh, segments on the program here. Uh, and and listening to their rationale and their justification for what they're doing is is it's, it's kind of akin to listening to some of the Donald Trump uh, you know defense ideas too about why he did this, etc. There doesn't seem to be any rationale because basically what Meta is saying here is that uh, them taking content from from other situations here and and posting it and then selling that time is beneficial to everybody. They, yes, they make money from it, but it's a good thing for the broadcasters and for the journalists too. Uh, there's no valid substantiation for that either, but that's the message that's out there, and it really does muddy the waters, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I I think that you know the the point is is that the these large foreign digital players like to come into Canada and they like to take our money, but they don't like to uh, be good 
corporate citizens in this country. And, uh, you know, I, I think the argument all along has been that there is a value to that content being on their platform, that they basically say that all of the value uh, goes back to the to the news organizations. But, you know, there was a reason why on Facebook, it was called a news feed. It was a very deliberate uh, part of what they tried to do when at a certain point, they were wanting to go just beyond the uh, the interpersonal uh, updates and wanting to find ways to get people to stay on the platform and for their time to be stickier on those platforms. And they began to court news content and to bring that on and for them now to kind of throw up their hands and say, well, this has no value to us, all the values to the news organizations. To me, to me, it's, uh, uh, it's, a, a sullen teenager's rationale to um, to something that they uh, don't want to uh, they don't want to have to do. And listen, this started some years ago, of course. Uh, you know, with uh, Zuckerberg and others actually appearing before some of these parliamentary committees, uh, and it it didn't go well, as as we now know. It that's why we're where we are right now. How much sway and how much authority uh, is is Facebook and 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 the others who are involved in this uh, giving to the government here? I mean, you know, can the government play hardball with these guys, or can they just say, "Well, we're ignoring you. We're not a Canadian company." Yeah, I mean, you know, this is the the challenge with a a company as large as Dominant and one that has as little regard for uh, national borders as Facebook does. Is you know, how do you have? Uh, you know, uh, national governments, are they actually able to stand up to uh, a, a company this large um, and, and, uh, and with this much dominance over their market? And, you know, I think that, uh, that ultimately we think that they do. Uh, we think that um, Canada is a sovereign nation that uh, doesn't uh, need to bend the knee to, uh, you know, a tech company from Silicon Valley. And, and I think that uh, ultimately, um, you know, uh, in a healthy democracy that we uh, see a path where uh, Facebook is going to have to, uh, to you know, uh, work by the rules of the land that they're in, not by the rules that they want to impose upon uh, every country that they go into. Now that they've taken the step, though, uh, is 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 this accelerating the process? I mean, because I, I got to tell you, frankly, the reaction I'm hearing from some of our listeners over the last couple of months uh, has has been rather in the abstract. In other words, they they're not quite sure what's happening here. Uh, but now that they're going to go on those sites and find out, hey, those things I used to go and look into, all those those new sites, so they're they're being blocked right now. Uh, is is that going to have the the impact of, of actually angering the public to say, hey, wait a second here, this is wrong, or are they simply going to go someplace else? Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's difficult to say. I I do think that people who do care about news and care about journalism are going to notice the fact that it's not there. Some some of that is because Facebook is, you know, uh, will will post something that says that they're blocking news, but. Um, you know, uh, Facebook has been really aggressive over the last little while of pushing and suggesting uh, other uh, accounts for people to follow as opposed to following news, trying to find ways to keep people on the platform that uh, that matter. But, 
Um, you know, the, there's still a substantial number of Canadians for whom that is where they, it's one of the first things that they open in the morning and that's where they go to get their information, whether if it's from friends and family or whether it's from the, the world more broadly. And, and I think that the idea that that is being shut off uh, to people, um, you know, I, I do hope that people notice that, that and, and, you know, there's certainly ways of, around it and we've seen uh, so many of our members uh, be very aggressive over the last few weeks to try and remind uh, viewers and listeners and, and readers where it is that they can find uh, news information outside of the social media platforms. But the social media platforms are a part of our lives now. And, and I think that uh, it's important that, uh, that people be able to access good quality professional journalism uh, through those uh, social media platforms. Uh, especially in these times with what's going on politically on both sides of the border these days, information is going to be key to that whole thing. But what they don't say in that argument, though, Kevin, uh, Facebook and 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 Meta and and, and Instagram and, and these others that are uh, involved in this uh, is is revenue, the revenue end of it. I mean, you know, we can direct listeners, for instance, uh, go to this webpage. You know, the, go to the the CHML or the CFPL webpage, and you can still get some of this information because we know that you want it. But can they sell that? I mean, revenue generation is what keeps us on the air, it, what keeps newspapers printing, et cetera, et cetera. That's been the basis for this. And it's how these guys make their money for the same thing, too. They they sell their content to advertisers. Are those advertisers going to fall back and say, okay, we'll just go to the smaller platforms, uh, the radio station or newspaper platforms, or are they simply going to stay? Look, we're going to stay with Facebook, even though we may not like them. But, you know, we can reach more people, and that's what advertising is all about. Yeah, I mean, it's a really complex uh, question at this point, because, you know, we have seen some advertisers say, well, if Facebook is going to block news in Canada, then we're not going to advertise on Facebook. But there's a lot of advertisers for whom that's a very difficult decision to make to walk away from a platform, which is, um, uh, you know, which is still... Uh, very important to people, a place that people are still gonna, going to go on a daily basis and, and, and uh, uh, an important uh, important place for them to be able to convert uh, uh, customers. So, um, and, you know, the advertising is at the foundation of all of these discussions. Um, and, you know, I've said that, that digital, these digital platforms now, uh, digital advertising in Canada is the largest piece of the advertising pie. It's, it's uh, uh, over 70%, I believe, at this point. And, uh, and the problem is, is that the vast majority of that is going to Facebook and Google, and that is Canadian advertisers dollars being funneled out of the country. And that those advertising dollars that used to support Canadian media and especially Canadian journalism are now basically going to support Silicon Valley and uh, and and Mark Zuckerberg's uh, uh, fantasies of the metaverse, the fake uh, uh, world as opposed to the real world. So um, so we have a, a a trade deficit in advertising in Canada, and the the outcomes of that is uh, fewer journalists employed and um, and real severe challenges to journalism and, and newsrooms in Canada. 
Well, we'll see what happens. Uh, the, the government is being, you know, lauded for being brave enough to pass the legislation, but that was only half the job. The other half now is to back it up. We'll see what they do. Kevin, as always, thanks for this. Appreciate the time today. Thanks so much, Bill. Take care. Kevin Desjardins, president of the Canadian Association of Broadcasters. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, I want to do a follow-up on a story that's uh, been front and center for quite some time, and that's human rights violations uh, within the Chinese government and by the Chinese government. Canada has been vocal about this, uh, not just this government, but the, the Harper government uh, before them. Uh, making some bold statements about, uh, you know, not going to stand for this and we're going to do something about this. Uh, but uh, a look at the some of the stats here indicates that Canada has little to show for its promise to combat forced labor in China, according to some critics. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Dr. Robert Hewish. Dr. Hewish is an associate professor in the Department of International Development Studies at Dalhousie University. Doctor, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Thank you very much, Bill. Good to be back. We haven't talked a whole lot about this. It gets, it gets overshadowed by some of the other things and the political things that are going on here right now. But as I read this story the other day, it brought back so many different stories about uh, Prime Minister Harper at that time, Prime Minister Trudeau and others uh, that have made bold statements in, in Parliament about what needs to be done here. Uh, yet the plight of the people that we're talking about here, the Uyghurs in particular, uh, forced labor camps and things of this nature, doesn't seem to be changing at all. I mean, are, are we dropping the ball here? Oh, yes. Uh, and that's, that's as you said, it goes back into the Harper government, their time in, in office. And then uh, Mr. Trudeau's government has uh, done quite a bit to well, effectively pay lip service to the human rights challenges that are going on in uh, Xinjiang province. That's the far western uh, part of China that borders Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. And the human rights issues that are going on there where you've got uh, the, the, the government in Beijing effectively practicing what we could call like a settler colonialism into the region and trying to push out and erase the the identity of uh, Muslim populations there, the Uyghurs. So there's been a lot of chat about it. And even those two governments in Canada, even they have said something about it, but so too have other partners around the world. The U.S., the Obama administration has spoken out widely on this. Um, Mr. Trump even mentioned it a couple times, and Mr. Biden has, has commented on it as well, as have uh, our partners in uh, Australia uh, as well. There's been uh, two, two or three prime ministers there who have brought this to attention. But in all the cases, if we look at this as sort of a big picture, if the idea is that we're going to try to put economic pressure or political pressure on Beijing in order to stop human rights violations in one part of the country, we really need to have a big think and sit down about the geographical and political and economic challenges that are going to prevent us from doing that. Because this has to be uh, one of the most important areas uh, for the world to watch in China, because it really speaks out what is this down the road plan for Beijing. Uh, it, it's a it's a place that, uh, you know, it's got uh, hundreds of uh, forced labor camps, uh, which they call uh, Lagao camps, which is mean, uh, you know, reform through work. And uh, that is uh, reform through labor, I should say. And you know, there are people in there who are there part of the Chinese criminal justice system, but also those who are there for misdemeanors, right? Or you just don't appear a certain way and, and you go. So we know that these that these labor camps, these labor prisons, as they're called, uh, there's about 1,155 of them that we know of in China. Now, only a portion of those are in Uyghur territory, but that's an important connection because 
when we see that there's active, uh, you know, a rager of the the Uyghur culture in China, these labor camps factor into it. And the labor camps are the connection to the outside world. This is where you have global corporations. You've got uh, you've got uh, Esprit, clothing manufacturer, Nike, BMW, Adidas, Samsung even has uh, dependent upon products that are made through the system, Marks and Spencer, North Face, Apple, whole bunch of others as well uh, that have been called out to say, hey, we believe your products have been connected to this uh, th- this uh, Logai uh, labor system. Now, of which, again, 1,155 camps are there, only a small portion are in Uyghur territory. So in that commodity chain, that is hugely complicated because where do we f- figure out which T-shirts and sneakers were, were, were done through uh, forced labor in one part of China as opposed to just within the whole system. So that's the that's the big problem you have there, Bill, is that it's it's so hard to decipher who's doing what inside of inside of China. And it and when you look at the corporations responding to this, uh, Nike, uh, you know, Nike, for example, says that they do not directly source products from the Xijing, the Uyghur, uh, the Uyghur autonomous region, and does not have relationships with the clothing manufacturing company in that in that area. But we've been conducting ongoing diligence with our suppliers in China to identify and assess political risks, potential risks related to employment. And that right there is what you're up against in dealing with human rights issues in China. See, there's, there's now four or five connections between the Uyghur family who's been imprisoned in these camps in Western China to actually getting a sneaker on somebody's foot. And that just causes the deniability at every stage to make it happen. And uh, even as we've talked about before, Bill, with with uh, surveillance and police stations and and foreign interference, that also folds into it. Where the United Front, uh, United Work Front, uh, is is a department within China that's also actively trying to make sure that potential businesses and government officials are less concerned about human rights in the area. And and they're they're wordsmithing some of this stuff too, aren't they, Doctor? I mean, as you say, with these large corporations, uh, will make this declaration. And I know in Canada, there's a called the Integrity Declaration they're supposed to make, which basically says, "Here's all our products. Uh, we're shipping them back here to to Canada or the United States now." And uh, and no, 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 we didn't we didn't do anything here in in that territory, but. <laughs> They could do it 100 miles outside the territory where the Uyghurs are still there in forced labor. And and apparently, technically, they're right, but they're not right because it's still very unethical. But they, they're kind of doing an end run on this, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. And that's that's the intentional design of this system is that the the the, the difference between uh, a product being, being created with Uyghur labor uh, is that that individual who's being forced to produce that product is doing doing against their political conscience. They 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 themselves have been been targeted to be to be in there based on their identity. You go a little bit outside. You could even go down outside of Beijing or Shanghai, and you will find similar camps that have been set up. They're likely doing different products, maybe more uh, tech based. However, it is that person might be there for a different crime. It could be political. It could not be. We're not sure. It's really really hard to try to say we're going to focus on this one indentured population in China and ignore the 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 rest of it. If there was a real understanding uh, by the politicians in this country and others who are making these commitments to human rights, it would have to be policy that would go beyond just the Xinjiang uh, territory. It would have to include all of China because it is so deeply integrated 
as a system within the country itself that you can't you can't decipher it i mean you're uh you're, you're trying to pick uh you're trying to pick dirt dirt out of pepper in that sense like who starts where like you just it's so it's so blended in that you can't uh, you can't make it happen and and any law that's passed and we talked about this act here this this integrity act or declaration any law like that is only as good as the enforcement of it, isn't it? And and this is the, one of the things that that I know you're aware of, but I, I've discovered reading up on this uh, that, that these goods are still passing through, and and you know oh, yeah. the border security is simply saying, look, we don't have the staff to go through everything, so they're yeah. basically giving everybody a pass. So the the legislation and this this act is really worthless, isn't it? Yeah, and and the the other part of it that makes it even a bit more futile is that commitment to try to to bring in uh, ten thousand Uyghur immigrants to to Canada. How are we going to set up the infrastructure to get a place that is basically under military control in that part of China? Uh, you know, express immigration uh, track for for populations there. Uh, you know, the Americans didn't even touch that one. I mean, that's also in part because of how. American migration works, but they, you know, for us to make that kind of lofty commitment that we want to see refugees from Uyghur territories coming in, there's very little understanding about the capabilities of our own architecture to do that. And even more so, Bill, I think there's uh, there's even a, a weaker understanding of China's architecture to combat against our intentions. I mean, don't forget that this this uh, foreign interference with the United the United Front work that is huge. That's a that's a whole department of about thirty thousand individuals in China that coordinate with like-minded souls around the world to help create uh, situations of influence that we've talked about, and that can be uh, uh, you know from various different forms about how that influence goes through. Uh, but it's a it's a range of methods uh, to to try to get that compliance, and we also know that in Xinjiang uh, territory, there's been databases created by the Chinese Communist Party about those who leave the territory. So they're under a form of surveillance that if uh, Han Chinese or uh, are, are from that the territory and they leave the country, their knowledge is that their whereabouts are known to the party. And the United Front work will approach them and say, hey, we see you're living in Canada now. Uh, would you mind uh, participating in this event that sort of puts a, a, a glossy shine on what we're doing in China. Now, that was really the case before the interference was 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 breaking out here before 2019. But you had about 15, 20 years where that was the uh, part of the agenda is, is using uh, expats as a way of, uh, of advertising and putting the, the shiny gloss on the nature of that labor system in there. And tracking them too, and I guess my, our, our listeners in the Hamilton area certainly remember uh, the case of Celine Jalil, who uh, that's about fifteen years ago now, I guess, uh, mm-hmm. who was basically kidnapped and brought back to China, and he's, he's, he may be in one of those camps. I mean, uh, you oh, know, yeah. and he, and his family settled in Burlington. That's why it became such a local issue for us. And he went back over there in business, not even back into China, and of course, uh, you know, was was immediately arrested, tried, and, and of course found guilty. Uh, so they've got a hold on people, and those stories resonate with these citizens too, don't they? Absolutely. I mean, you know, what we're seeing here is, is this is actually something that I think any foreign policy expert and anyone in the government of Canada or, again, Australia, U.S., since they're part of the, the discussion, they need to realize that, that, that this Western remote part of China is not uh, isolated globally from the day-to-day happenings of, of our society and our politics. In order to try to, again, put that glossy, shiny appeal on it, 
uh, you're seeing, you know, the methods of, of influence, love, money, and intimidation. That's basically how the United Front Department works. And we're also seeing with inside uh, the, the Xinjiang province is that you've got uh, what was a population of, of Han Chinese population constituted around 5% of that territory in 1947 to now 42% in 2020. So again, there's active settler occupation of the territory uh, by Han Chinese coming into it. And those people have the ability to leave, right, where the Uyghurs don't. And this is what we're seeing as sort of a blueprint of multiple stages of trying to erase Uyghur identity within China. And, and if we need to have an understanding about how to engage and approach ways of, of helping people inside or deterring influence outside, we need those details. We we just can't stand in a in the House of Commons or or in the Senate and say we must do something. No, no, you you've got to be strategic. You've got to know how your, your opponent operates. And the, China is putting a lot of resources and a lot of complicated connections in between direct uh, direct culpability and liability for for this human rights crisis. Uh, so glad you had some time to talk to us about this. It's an, uh, an issue that seems to get pushed to the side because of some of the other things going on, but it's very important that uh, we not only be aware of this, but uh, but uh, you know pressure our MPs to follow up on this stuff too. Doctor, as always, thank you for this. Appreciate the time. Great. Thanks. Thanks so much, Bill. Thank you. Take care. Dr. Robert Hewish from Dalhousie University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.